0: From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abi, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's clinical and translational science center. The goal of the Affordable Care Act, or ACA, was to expand access to health insurance to Americans who had previously lacked coverage. Since the ACA was signed into law in 2010, around 20 million people who didn't have health insurance are now covered for routine exams, prescriptions, and protected from being denied coverage due to pre-existing conditions. There are issues with the ACA, like premiums increasing year over year and high deductibles for plans purchased on federal and state health exchanges. And 25 million Americans still don't have health insurance. Since its passage, congressional Republicans have wanted the ACA repealed. Attempts at repeal have been stymied, but the effort by Republican lawmakers seems to keep finding new life. On today's episode, Think Research producer Brendan Keegan catches up with Dr. Benjamin Summers to discuss his work examining the effects of the ACA's Medicaid expansion. Dr. Summers shares his unique perspective as a practicing primary care internist and a health economist focused on health policy for vulnerable populations. Dr. Summers is an associate professor of health policy and economics at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health.
1: Hello, Dr. Summers. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, can you tell us what interested you in healthcare policy and how you got started in your career?
2: Yeah, well, I, I always knew that I was interested in in a career in medicine, or at least considering that. And as I uh, spent time in college, uh, you know, following physicians and uh, learning about medicine, I, I became increasingly interested in um, kind of a whole second set of issues, which was what was determining which patients never came in the door. Um, what was keeping some people from being able to access uh, the medical care they needed? And why did some people, you know, come in for a visit, but then not follow up when they were supposed to, or or people who weren't able to get their med- prescriptions filled? And so this kind of uh, fed into a longstanding interest I had also in just the policy and political world. And so uh, when it came time to decide what to do uh, in terms of medical school and training and beyond, uh, I decided I wanted to do both medical training and uh, graduate work in health policy and economics. And so I came to Harvard and did MD, PhD, uh, and since then have been working in both of these fields, taking care of patients and doing health policy research.
1: And when you started at Harvard as a faculty member, this was just around the time that the Affordable Care Act was being implemented. Can you tell us about what it was like starting your career in health policy right around the time that the biggest health policy change in 50 years was coming into effect?
2: It was incredibly exciting um, and uh, and really fortunate. I, I- my interests uh, in my dissertation work, which I had completed a couple of years before the Affordable Care Act and before residency, focused on issues of access to health care, um, health insurance in particular, in Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program. And then went, I went and did my clinical training, was really immersed in residency. And as I was winding down uh, in residency, the the Affordable Care Act passed. And I was on the job market interviewing for research jobs. And it was such a natural fit that when, when uh, people asked me, Well, what will you do in your new job? What can of research? What you, you, will you focus on? Uh, I said, well, there's, you know, there's this new law coming uh, that we all are, are, you know, quite eager to see what happens with, and um, you know, love it, hate it, or feel neutral about it. It was clear that this was an Im- enormously important law, and that um, good evidence on how it was working was going to be really valuable. And so I started uh, my faculty job in uh, fall 2010. Um, a year in, I decided to take a year leave of absence uh, from Harvard to go down to Washington D.C. I had the chance to work at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, doing research and implementation planning related to the Affordable Care Act. And since I've come back, uh, the ACA has been um, a large focus of much of my work. Uh, So the timing couldn't have been better from the perspective of someone who cares about these issues and thinks they're really important to study well. Um,
1: So you do research in social policy, um, which is different than a lot of the types of medical research that go on at Harvard at other um, institutions. Can you explain what the difference, what some of the differences are in how you conduct research versus um, biomedical research, drug discovery, that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the biggest difference from uh, the, most of the research that goes on at Harvard Medical School um, is, you know, I think you could categorize a, a lot of the work here is is clinical uh, translational research, you know, randomized trials of patient care. Um, and then we also have a lot of bench science, basic science work, um, you know, a, a in the lab. And our work is neither of those. Um, We are doing typically large-scale evaluations of public policies that are not randomized, um, where you don't have the luxury of an experiment. And so what you're trying to do is come up with statistical approaches and innovative study designs and clever use of existing data sources or collecting data when you need to, to really understand what are the effects of these big policies. And so for instance, uh, a lot of the work that uh, I've done over the past several years has been looking at the health effects of people gaining health insurance. Turns out that while common sense would say, well, of course, having health insurance helps improve your health, there's n- not a lot of great evidence on this. At least you know at the times that we started our work, and um, and you know while. A- Every 20 or 30 years, there's a randomized controlled trial of health insurance in in healthcare. Um, there've really been two in the last 50 years. Uh, we f- took advantage of a bunch of natural experiments. So, for instance, several states in the early 2000s chose to expand Medicaid to all low-income adults in their states, but most other states didn't do that. And this was kind of a preview of what has now happened under the Affordable Care Act. So, we compared those states to similar neighboring states that didn't expand and looked at the effects on access to care on people's perceived well-being and overall survival. And then in 2006, Massachusetts was uh, the first state to pass a near-universal coverage bill um, under then-Governor Mitt Romney, and that proposal became the model for what we uh, now have in place under the Affordable Care Act nationally. So in another study that I did with my colleagues, we compared uh, the the population mortality effects of the Massachusetts health reform, looking at um, this state compared to counties across the country that had similar populations, similar health risks, um, but didn't have a, a big change in coverage in 2006. 2006. So these are the sorts of approaches that we do in our our work. These, which are mostly these natural experiments and large social policy changes, um, but don't have uh, you know the luxury of of an RCT or or a lab where we can perfectly recreate um, the you know the study design of, of our choosing.
1: Are there instances where you're where you're creating experiments? You you talk about wait, you're kind of waiting around for natural experiments, but I imagine there's there's lots of things that you want to study that you can't wait around for. Um, Are there any projects that you've done where you kind of, or are there ways that you can create experiments where the natural experiment kind of doesn't exist?
2: Well, um, when you, if you get enough money, there's a way. Uh, so, for instance, the you know I mentioned that there occasionally you get these randomized control trials in healthcare of big you know insurance changes. Um, in uh, in 2009, um, Oregon had a wait list for uh, its Medicaid program. They didn't have enough money to cover everybody, but they were trying to cover a larger number of low-income adults. And then they ultimately had a little bit more money but couldn't cover everyone on the wait list. So they had a lottery and they picked names off the hat. So they had a randomized trial of health insurance. Kate Baker, a colleague of mine at the Harvard School of Public Health, along with several others at Harvard, MIT, and elsewhere, put together a huge uh, study of this um, with uh, significant funding from multiple sources. And they basically had their own randomized trial but uh, those are few and far between, so m- mostly we are, are left to try to deal with the reality of, of, uh, of what policies are being implemented and, and trying to find those, those uh, you know a- appropriate and rigorous ways to study it. Sometimes it's the natural experiment of comparing one state to another. Sometimes it's looking for arbitrary uh, uh, cut points in a policy. For instance, the Affordable Care Act to let um, young adults stay on their parents' plans through their 26th birthday starting in 2010. Well, that cutoff at 26 years creates another opportunity to study it so in a series of papers that I and others have written we looked at what happened to young adults who were 19 to 25 um, after this policy took effect and we compared them to slightly older adults 27 and 28 29 year olds who were not eligible for this policy so you know there are a lot of opportunities um, and this is where the creativity of our uh, of our field uh, I think is is uh, really valuable that uh, we find ways to not get randomized data but as close as, as we can with the existing uh, policy realities and try to to draw firm uh, conclusions about the evidence on these effects
1: let's talk about your research you study uh, the Affordable Care Act and specifically the Medicaid expansion can you talk about your research uh, on the Medicaid expansion and the recent uh, papers you've uh, written
2: yeah. So the um, I mentioned the that the Affordable Care Act's first provision to cover uh, to expand health insurance was this young adult provision that took effect in 2010. And so um, a series of papers that that I worked on with colleagues here, uh, as well as uh, when I was at HHS, looked at the effects of gaining coverage from that policy. More recently, the ACA uh, created. a big expansions of coverage through the new health insurance marketplaces where people could go buy private insurance and, and use tax credits to help it make it affordable, and the Medicaid expansion, which has happened in 31 states and, and Washington, D.C., whereas 19 states chose not to do it. So you could imagine that that creates a, a, a natural comparison, a, this a, this kind of natural experiment to look at the effects of, of coverage. And what we found... First, at the broad population level, um, when the Affordable Care Act kicked in, uh, a bunch of trends and outcomes that were getting worse in the pre- years preceding that, number of people without health insurance, people's ability to afford their care, um, you know, whether or not they had a primary care provider, a lot of these trends were moving in the wrong direction. And what we found is that when the, the big expansion of coverage began in 2014, uh, we saw a shift and that things started to move in the right direction, big drop off in the number of people without health insurance, increases in the numbers of people who have primary care and say they can afford their medications. So these changes are all kind of suggestive at the national level, but the even stronger evidence comes from the Medicaid expansion, because that's where we can really look and compare states that did versus states that didn't expand. And so in a series of papers, some of which use national data and others used a deep dive uh, into a a couple of particular states where um, we got funding to do our own survey, and we surveyed about 10,000 low-income adults in three states uh, over over a four-year period. What we found was that the The states that expanded Medicaid um, produced big benefits for the low-income population. Adults in our survey were better able to um, afford their care. They stopped skipping medications because they couldn't afford it. If they had chronic conditions, they were more likely to be getting regular care for it. They were more likely to be getting preventive testing like uh, glucose screening for diabetes. Um, They reported that their overall health, they felt better. um, they, They rated their health status as having improved. And so you take this picture overall. And you you see that getting health insurance makes a real difference to people. And one of the other um, wrinkles in this paper was that we looked at one state that expanded Medicaid. um, This was in Kentucky, one of the biggest Medicaid expansions in in the country under the ACA. We also looked at Arkansas, which expanded coverage, but took that Medicaid dollar, the Medicaid money, and used it to buy private insurance for low-income people. And what we found was that either approach produced big benefits compared to a third state, Texas, that didn't expand. It didn't seem to matter all that much whether it was private insurance or public insurance. And and sometimes when you listen to the political rhetoric on both the left and the right, you'll hear sharply different views on that, right? Uh, The kind of standard conservative line is that marketplace solutions are always better than government solutions. Uh, Single-payer advocates say all we have to do is get private insurance out of this and just have the government do it. Um, And what we found was actually... Either approach is successful, and the main difference is we need to get people coverage uh, if we want to make their healthcare affordable and improve their their overall healthcare uh, experience and health status. Uh, so we,
1: those are some of the most important findings in our work. As an MD PhD, somebody who studies health insurance, studies health outcomes, and then you see patients every day, does that give you um, I don't not maybe not an advantage, but a n- different perspective on the type of research you do based on just somebody who's either just a PhD studying these policies or just a primary care physician. Um, can you speak a little to that? Have you is that something you've thought about?
2: Yeah, um, I, I don't see patients every day. Um, okay, I, well I do you see, see them p- every week. Yeah. <laughs> I see patients every week. Uh, it's it's certainly the case that what I see clinically affects how I think about the policy issues and vice versa. Um, now, you know, I, I regularly meet with students and with residents who are considering various career paths, you know, combining research or policy work or public health work in clinical medicine. And, um, you know, and they're, everyone's trying to kind of figure out exactly what's the right match for them and what's the path forward. And so I often get asked why I Continue to do both. Why do I still see patients, and why do I do the research? And the short answer is why well, I like both. Um, I mean, fundamentally, I would I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy and find both parts of that job meaningful. Um, but it is certainly true that seeing patients gives me, um, you know, a real real world exposure and, and reminder of why these issues matter. Um, you know, patients of mine, even in Massachusetts, which has you know near universal coverage. Uh, it, deal with challenges of loss of insurance, um, changing coverage, uh, changing pr- uh, formularies and having to switch medications, getting certain medications or certain referrals approved. Um, and, uh, and those sorts of challenges are, are, are part of what I take to heart when I then sit down and think about what are the research questions I want to examine and why does this matter. Um, and then from the ex- external world, from the outside perspective, you know, I do think there is something different when I uh, am at a conference or I'm talking to a policymaker and and describing our evidence because I can say, well, you know, these aren't just the numbers. Let me tell you about a patient of mine and, and how this relates to them, or, or or you know, these are challenges that I see happening in in um, in, in my clinical experience. And so, um, you know, good research should stand on its own, but the reality is that policymakers also want stories. They also want to hear about individual people because it makes it more real to them. Um, and my clinical time certainly gives me that. That sense of what um, what this means to, to you know, an individual person when they are challenged or faced uh, facing these barriers to care.
1: So let's um, jump back to um, your research. You talked about some of the work you've done on the Medicaid expansion. So based on, and you touched on this a little bit, but based on what you've seen, um, has the Medicaid expansion been effective in getting people healthier.
2: I mean, I think what we know now, based on the, the first couple of years of the Affordable Care Act, is the Medicaid expansion has undoubtedly improved um, coverage rates, access to care, affordability of care. It's improved the patterns of care. we see people more likely to, to be getting chronic disease management, more likely to be getting preventive health services. And we see, at least in, in several studies, not all of them, but in several studies, we see this improvement also in well-being and uh, and, and perceived health status. Um, you know, I, I think we're still uh, probably several years away from having the definitive answer on some of the other longer term health outcomes. Um, you know, if you look at what the evidence on Massachusetts has uh, unfolded over time, what we see is that you know, in the first couple of years, you get some of these survey based measures, you find out how people are using their health care, what they report as their barriers to care and affordability challenges. And you also get some of these measures like how I feel about my health. Um, over time, you start to get more detailed studies, you get to look at, you know, cancer registries, you get to look at heart disease outcomes, you look at survival rates. And so it's a process, right? There's kind of a, a time course to the way the research develops, both, both based on, it, you know, some of the effects may take a while, right? Um, we don't expect health insurance improves your survival on day one. Um, but also because the data take a while, um, you know, the, collecting this rigorous data across a variety of outcomes, um, often using government sources, sometimes with primary data collection, is time-consuming, and um, and there's usually a time lag with that. So I think we're still a little bit of ways away from the, being able to kind of make the final determination as to uh, what the, the the overall impacts have been. But from everything we've seen. Um, all of the the, the indicators are, are moving in the direction that we'd expect that match up with prior expansions of coverage. And so my expectation and from what we've seen so far is the Medicaid expansion has been effective. It's been improving care um, and people are feeling better. Whether in the long run we see a mortality change, that's to be determined. Um, prior research that we've done suggests probably, but, um, you know, I would never say for sure. Every policy is different and we have to kind of measure it and uh, independently assess each round to, to know what the, the full effects will
1: be we've seen over the past six months, um, the struggle with Congress, um, trying to repeal and replace Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. Um, at this moment that we're recording, it seems like those efforts have failed and maybe there's going to be some kind of bipartisan push to shore up the insurance markets. Um, what would you like to see as somebody who's interested in Patient health, what would you like to see change in the Affordable Care Act uh, to improve the insurance marketplaces or um, getting more people covered? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you know, some of the changes are, aren't um, a matter of legislation. Some of the changes are just about how the law is implemented and continues to be implemented. So for instance, right now, one of the things we're hearing a lot about is these cost-sharing subsidies. Um, these are, are dollars that are uh, in the law that uh, basically help middle, lower- and middle-income families that have private coverage, whose income is too high for Medicaid, so they're getting private insurance through the marketplaces. It helps them afford their co-pays and their deductibles um, because these plans, we know, in some cases, have you know several thousand dollar deductibles, and people uh, you know who are in the kind of lower working uh, class may not be able to afford that. And um, and the law kind of intended to make coverage uh, and care more affordable in that group, but. Um, Congress sued uh, during the Obama years to block that money from going to the insurance companies. Uh, they said, "We, you know, we don't want to fund this." And it was part of essentially a, a, a multi-pronged attempt to interfere in any way they could with the implementation of the ACA. With with President Obama and the White House, they couldn't repeal it, um, and so they were just going to basically gum up the works every at every opportunity. And um, and that uh, that policy ended up in the courts uh, and. President Trump, with the collapse of the most recent effort to repeal or at least significantly uh, modify the ACA, has now been saying, well, maybe we're not going to pay that money. Maybe we're going to pull that back. It'll make care unaffordable for many people. But that's all right, because it'll just make the marketplaces more unstable. And and I guess in in their view, somehow that's a good thing. While that might score them political points— I'm skeptical it will, I think people will say, well, why are you letting bad things happen to us? Um, the, The political hot potato and kind of blame shifting is not a constructive way to make policy. And so what I'd like to see happen are things like this, which is really a manufactured crisis, treated in a much more common sense way, which is the law says that people are supposed to get these benefits. If we don't have the votes to change the law, then they get that, you know, they they get these benefits. If we can revisit it and debate whether there's another solution and come up with a law that we can pass, then do it. But we're not just gonna basically, you know, gum up the the implementation of a law that's on the books uh, for political gain. That that would be step one. I'd just like to see the law implemented the way that it's currently in the books. But there are clearly some changes in the law that would be beneficial. Um, I think one of the uh, one of the findings or one of the um, results over the past year or two that has been concerning a lot of people is that in some counties, in particular in some smaller, popul- less populated counties, um, there are not a lot of insurance options in the marketplace. And that has two ramifications. One is that it can make the premiums more expensive, there's less competition. And the other is that People may have fewer choices that they like, fewer choices of provider networks, the way they want their benefits set up, et cetera. Um, So steps to stabilize that and boost um, um, plan participation would would be really valuable in some of these areas. Now, I think the problems with this have been overstated. This is not the majority of the country, and most most areas in the U.S. have fairly stable marketplace um, participation right now. But in the areas that don't, there are easy steps that Congress could take. Uh, They could could re-implement something called reinsurance, where plans get reimbursed for extraordinarily high-cost patients, and that helps hold down premiums for everybody. That was part of the law for the first three years, but expired after 2016. So you could put that back in. That would help. Um, You could also boost enrollment through more outreach. If you bring more people into the risk pool, uh, that generally Help stabilize things, and certainly uh, insurers are more likely to participate if they know they're going to get more customers. Well, again, what was one of the first things that the Trump administration did upon taking office? They pulled you know millions of dollars worth of advertisements that were designed to get people to sign up for for the marketplaces, um, and these were ads that actually had already been paid for, so it didn't save money. They just decided to not keep the advertising space that had already been purchased. Um, so you know there's a mixture of of just more straightforward, less partisan implementation and some fixes to the law that. Could, could boost um, uh, enrollment and, and stabilize the marketplaces considerably. But I think it is worth stepping back and just saying more broadly, you know, there is a lot of focus on the marketplaces right now. Uh, the marketplaces cover about 10 million people in the U.S. Uh, Medicaid covers about 70 million, and, and employer coverage still covers nearly half of all Americans. Um, so the marketplaces are important, but for a very small subset of the market. And so um, sometimes it's it, the, I think the media attention is, is almost exclusively on what's happening, not only in the marketplaces, but in some of the weakest parts of the marketplaces in a handful of counties, where we might only be talking about 20 or 30,000 people. And that's not to say that that is a number we should ignore, but the big perspective here, the repeal debate over the ACA, far more consequential than any of these tweaks to the marketplace, is whether or not Medicaid funding continues to exist in the way it does now, whether or not states are able to afford to cover those 70 million people, mostly low-income children, low-income parents, uh, and people with disabilities. So I think that was probably one of the most striking parts of the debate, was how much ground uh, the groundswell of support there was for Medicaid. As people said, uh, you know, in this in Democratic and Republican governors, uh, conservatives and liberals. Often, uh, often in conflict on a lot of issues saying, we can't make big cuts to Medicaid, it will hurt too many
1: people. Are there any projects you're working on now that you want to talk about, or where do you see your research heading with the continued debate?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent the, um, the election and the kind of resulting threat of repealing the ACA um, extended the window in which understanding the law's effects are really policy relevant in a timely way. And so um, my own research agenda, I think I had to take stock again and say, well, some of the projects I was maybe moving on from, um, now probably still need to go on. I mean we do need some some active monitoring of what's happening with coverage trends and affordability and, and marketplace competition. Um, there are also a lot of innovations and new approaches being proposed in state Medicaid programs. Um, you know, for for as long as the programs existed, states have some flexibility to, to run these programs in different ways. And, but there's certain rules they're not allowed to to break, and that they can only do it if the white, uh, if the um, federal government signs off and gives them a waiver and says yes, you can try a new approach. Well, uh there's certain things that the Obama administration simply said no. States wanted to make work requirements for Medicaid or wanted to um, you know, charge higher cost sharing, more co pays, or use health savings accounts. Um, and without federal government approval, those state proposals just kind of fizzle out. But the Trump administration has made very clear that they are eager to sign off on many of these proposals, if not all of them, and in particular ones that take a more market based approach or more cost sharing or um, you know, sense of personal responsibility as sometimes gets described with these work requirements. So we're going- going to see states moving ahead with these proposals even without any law out of Congress because it doesn't require that. Um, and so we're, we're doing some work right now that's going to, to look at some of the, the approaches being taken in different states to try to get a sense of whether these things matter. Um, you know, uh, again, as usual, there's a, a pretty stark partisan divide and you hear conservatives saying that this will save the program and make people's lives, you know, much better, much more self-reliant. And you hear people on the left saying uh, this will be catastrophic. Um, and, you know, we don't know what the answer is. Uh, and it may be that it may be anywhere in between. Uh, and it may be that these programs are mildly effective or mildly harmful or essentially a wash. And so we're doing some work right now to try to get a sense of how uh, different state approaches to Medicaid um, affect things. And then more broadly, you know, my research has been really focused on the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid simply because that's where so much of the action has been. But my my broader interests are really in health care for vulnerable populations. Um, it's not all about health insurance. Um, and in fact, some of the work that, that I did recently with some colleagues at, at uh, the School of Public Health, we looked at race racial and ethnic disparities in the post-ACA period, and what we found was that health insurance only explained a small portion of the remaining disparities in not only coverage, but um, affordability of care, quality of care that people perceive, um, and access to outpatient care. And so there's a lot more to be done that's not just about health insurance, but about uh, the factors that uh, influence how people use their health care, and how that health care ultimately affects their health.
1: Thank
0: you very much for coming in to talk with us. Thanks so much for having me. next time on think research actually james was very funny my, my undergrad mentor he said to me he said i'll write you a letter but i'll only give it to you if you apply M.D. Ph.D."
2: and i said i've been in your lab for two years i've worked 20 to 40 hours a week and you've given me an a on all my lab scores like why would you and he said nope you need to do this you'll thank me later
0: dr nero ananda Sabapathy talks about her lab's work trying to understand how to harness the body's immune system to fight cancer cells and tells the personal story of how mentors helped shape her career. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.com dot edu slash thinkresearch.